Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambodasa Bodang Damang Sankang Namasami. So, this is the final talk uh, for the Sangha here for this uh, range retreat, the 12th talk in a series of talks. It also for the community here, there won't be another talk on a Wednesday night for a few weeks as uh, teaching retreats and overseas and all sorts of other stuff. So please listen carefully because this will have to last you for a while. And also uh, being at the end of a retreat, uh, hopefully that many of you uh, have uh, developed enough peace, enough progress, your minds are reasonably clear because at this time that we get more activity happening. But please remember, those of you who are leaving, remember many other people aren't leaving. So please don't disturb their practice with all your arrangements and stuff uh, to, uh, to depart. And also for those of you who are staying here, or even if you are leaving, the retreat hasn't finished yet. And by knowing that, we always make sure that we try and grab every opportunity uh, for peace and for stillness. And uh, you have to do that because you never know when opportunities fade away from you whether it's sickness, whether it's injury, whether it's death, or whatever happens. We never know the future, so every moment must count. And when we actually put that importance into every moment, it's just another way of developing the present moment awareness. You know, I talked about that the very first talk on this retreat. You talk about it now, you can't go past that. That how much time over the last three months have you wasted dwelling in the past, planning the future, figuring out what will happen? And if there is a yet to be great attainments or peace, it's mostly because one runs away from the present moment. And why is that? It's bad habits, a bit of fear. I say fear because. A lot of times people think they have to plan the future. If they didn't plan the future, then they're afraid of things getting out of control. Remember, going off to the future is all about controlling your life. And to let go means being in the present moment. And again, understanding that this is the place your future is being made. Look after this present moment. That's the best you can possibly do for your future. I know that people say, but you've got to plan some things. Yes, but you know you all plan far too much. So look more into this present moment. If you really want to develop your life as a bhikkhu, as a bhikkhuni, samanera, samaneri, upasaka, upasika, spend more time in this moment. This is where you see the Dhamma. This is where you find peace. This is where you find freedom. And too many of our present moments we waste until we're old, we're dying, until we're in our coffin. And that's too late. So, even though it's the, towards the end of the retreat, it's still like the beginning. Because really there's no difference. The present moment just is. And our job with this, again, is to make peace, be kind, be gentle. You can't go past that either. Sitting meditation this afternoon, it just, it's amazing. That's all you ever do. Just whatever moment you have, just make peace, be kind, be gentle. Again, what I teach you, I practice myself. So I don't just tell you one thing and do another. When I'm in my cave, that's how I meditate. Keep it very, very simple. Now to be able to do that, to really make peace in this present moment, to be content with it, to be kind with it, to be gentle with it, 
that works. And if you're not getting more peaceful, if you're getting restless, it means you aren't making peace. It means you're feeding the restless mind. Making peace, calming it down, allowing it to be still. I was just uh, talking with one of the monks on the interviews. Just, uh, just the basic teachings which I've often given to lay people. You know, we're talking about the scanning meditation and how that works. And I was reminding them that to relax the body and even to overcome aches and pains, even you know, quite severe illnesses in your body, you are mindful of that area which is aching, which is hurting, and you give it compassion. Now, if you really are giving it compassion, which is the same as making peace, being kind, being gentle with that experience, if it truly is making peace, being kind, being gentle, you will experience that sensation change. And it will become softer, the pain will be eased, you'll feel a little bit better. And the mindfulness gives you the feedback. It tells you, yes, something is changing to the positive, the aches and pains are getting less. You are relaxing. And that's an important thing to notice because as you are making peace, being kind, being gentle with the feelings in your body, that also means that you are being mindful of their change, they're getting more peaceful, you're learning how to relax your body. And you're noticing that mindfulness gives you the feedback to show you whether you're going in the correct direction or not. And you do that to relax your body, to get rid of some aches and pains, and it's also strengthening those two, the mindfulness and kindness, so that when you start in the present moment, the present moment may be tense, it may be uncomfortable at first, but with the mindfulness in the present moment, if you're mindful of the past or the future or fantasizing, this doesn't work. So keep the awareness in the moment and see what it takes to relax that present moment. See, my making peace, being kind, being gentle. If it really is that, not just the words, but what I'm talking about, what it means, you'll find the present moment becomes far more comfortable. You're relaxing this moment, which means that this present moment becomes very pleasant. Just like your body becomes pleasant when it's relaxed, when the aches and the pains and the coughs and the itches disappear. In the same way, your mind becomes very present. It's very hard to sit still when you've got aches and pains, tired, hay fever, backache, all these other aches. It's very hard to stay still with those physical pains. In the same way, it's very hard for the mind to be still if it's not relaxed, if it's aching. I use that word, it's very hard to find a decent word for that ache in the present moment which, which <coughs> makes you run away from the present moment. Makes you run off into the future or into the past or into fantasies or dreams, anything but just being here. But by relaxing that present moment, by making peace, being kind, being gentle, the present moment becomes a great place to hang out. Which means you don't have to hold your attention. The effort stops there. You don't do anything except to make peace, be kind, be gentle. And do it and be mindful so you know that you're actually doing it correctly. And it works. And what happens? You're in the present moment, you're peaceful, you're happy, you are meditating. And then all these other things happen by themselves, as I've said throughout this whole retreat. The breath appears, you don't need to go looking for it. You know, when you're making peace, being kind, being gentle, you're relaxing even the breath. So the breath gets just so soft and gentle, just like the body, so soft and gentle and comfortable and happy when you've relaxed the body and all the aches and the pains have disappeared. The body feels great. And here the breath feels great. And it's so easy to watch it because it's not unpleasant. Remember anything you watch which is unpleasant or if you're listening to this talk and you find it unpleasant, you know, you just want to sort of uh, listen to something else or close your ears, fantasize, go to sleep, walk out the door, anything. When it's unpleasant, you want to escape. When it's enjoyable, it grabs your attention 
you want to stay there. That's just like with the breath. It stays. It gets more and more delightful. The more you make peace, the mindfulness shows you you're going in the correct direction. The mindfulness sees it changing. And if you find the breath starts to get rougher, more thoughts come into the mind, it means you aren't making peace, you aren't being kind, you aren't being gentle. You're doing something wrong. So check. So this meditation is to learn what making peace, being kind, being gentle really is. Just learning what is Samasankapa. It's that which makes the breath beautiful, which relaxes it, which gives it ease, which makes it free, it lets it go, it renounces control, it makes it just naturally peaceful. That's what it is. That's why I kept on saying throughout the whole retreat, this is what insight is. You understand, ah, now that's what Ajahn Brahm kept on meaning. He's been going on about this for years and years and years. Now I know what it means, making peace, being kind, being gentle. It's that thing I just did, and my breath became so peaceful and nice. That's the insight. Again, too many people live in the realm of concepts and ideas. They never know what these things truly are. Even just things like mindfulness. What is mindfulness? There's actually a definition in psychotherapy about what mindfulness is. I forget it now. I heard it once and forgot about it. That doesn't make sense. But compassion. You know what compassion is? Everyone says, yeah, I know what compassion is. I know what it means in Pali. It's Karuna. My even name is Karunika. So I must know what compassion is. That's me. But do you really know what compassion is? It's that which makes the breath beautiful and peaceful, and soft. So the mindfulness actually gives you the, instru- gives you the insights. It gives you the feedback, say, ah, oh, I know what's going on now. Maybe it's because I trained as a scientist doing experiments. Now you, you learn this. It's, you look at the instruments, they give you the feedback. Looking at the instruments is like mindfulness. And you see how they're changing. You know, if you tweak the knobs in the right way, then everything settles down. That's being kind making peace, being gentle. And as that happens, as I kept on saying, the mindfulness increases, it becomes easier to be, make peace, be kind, be gentle, because you're more aware of what's going on. You can be more subtle. You get instruments which are far more sensitive. So you can actually calm this thing down even much more. And of course, the breath disappears. What happens next? You just make peace, be kind, be gentle, whatever happens next. In other words, you relax everything. And when you relax everything, it gets more peaceful, more happy, more joy. And when you get bliss coming up, make peace, be kind, be gentle, relax it. Don't stop the process when things start to happen. And of course, nimittas come up. What do the nimittas? Make peace, be kind, be gentle. And it is a test for you, because if you are really making peace, being kind, being gentle, that nimitta will settle down. And it will stay. You have the mindfulness. Nimitta moving around, coming and going. You see that very clearly. And you should have enough wisdom to notice the connection. Whatever it is you're doing, which makes it stay and become stable, that is making peace, being kind, being gentle. If it moves more, you have been controlling, doing something. You learn what we mean by this. Nimitta gets incredibly bright. Just all the way, making peace, being kind, being gentle. So I mentioned to someone, the deeper you go, the harder you are tested. You really have to make peace, be kind, be gentle to get into the jhanas. Now the real thing. So you learn what these things are and you learn how they work. And from that you do get your insights which reinforce these great teachings of the Buddha. You know, the fact that you know there is nobody inside of here. There is no soul. There is no controller. Just these five candors keep coming and going. And the way you know that, because if ever you meditate with the you know, absence of any soul or self in the five candors, you look at everything with that, 
and everything becomes peaceful. It's just so easy to make peace because you've got nothing else to do. That's why sometimes listening to talks, getting brainwashed, as I keep on saying, that actually assists the meditation enormously. And sometimes that I've you know, sort of contemplate, once that right view is established, once you know there's nobody in here, once you really deeply understand and comprehend that, basically you're a stream winner, but it's so easy to meditate. You know there's no one inside, so there's nothing to do. There's no one at the controls. And you start your meditation noticing that, understanding that. Even the thing which is watching is just part of the five candles. It's not separate. It's not something outside of the five candles watching it. It's the five candles watching the five candles. There's nobody in here. The whole thing is empty. Noticing that, it makes it so easy to understand what making peace, being kind, being gentle really is. It's making peace, is realizing there's nothing to control anybody or control anything. There's no one in there. So you've got no choice. It's obvious, it's a natural reaction to seeing no self is to let things be. As it says in Anatalakana Sutta, which I've emphasized again and again on this retreat, if the five candors really did belong to you, you could control them. Because they don't belong to you, and there's no one in there who can control anything anyway, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do. Do nothing. Let it be. Make peace. Be kind. Be gentle. It's obvious when you see it. So not only does this path lead to stream winning, the stream winning leads to strengthening the path. Nothing to do. So you just sit there and just watch all this world disappear. And get jhanas and great insights and everything. You know, one of the ways you can understand whether it's right view or not, because sometimes, you know, we're talking just uh, with some monks. It's amazing just even sort of, you know, great monks you think would know better. You know, sometimes some of their views is Amazing they can have such wrong view. But you know if it's right view or wrong view, not by just how sensible it sounds, because it's amazing just how we can justify anything, you know, with a with a sharp mind. I remember I think telling some of you uh, in previous talks, when I was at Cambridge University, there was many, many clubs and societies, and I joined a few of those. You know, they didn't have enough work in those days. It was a very soft getting a degree from a place like Cambridge. You had lots of free time. So, you know, messing around, you know, with all sorts of societies, you know, parties and stuff. The social life was even more important sometimes. But one of the societies I didn't join, because I don't think I was smart enough, was very well known. It was the Flat Earth Society. And the Flat Earth Society in Cambridge... To actually to join that is mostly for scientists, mathematicians, or philosophers. You had to write a paper and present it to other members of that society, proving that the earth was flat. <laughs> now, of course, everybody knows it's not flat, but a good scientist would not let the truth stand in the way of their paper. <laughs> You could argue anything, you know, with a you know, few clever equations. And that was the whole purpose of it. Just to show how through sheer cleverness you can argue convincingly something which is patently untrue. That's the same with some of the wrong views you find around in the world. Very clever people. You can argue anything through logic. Even you can confirm it with your... Um, experiences. And of course that's where we have the great Buddha's teachings, that's where it explained that to me, how that can happen, how you can actually explain, or I could do this on flat earth, how people can get it all wrong, is because of those whippalazas, the perversions of perception, of thought and view. Basically, because of defilements, we only see what we want to see. We hear 
what we want to hear. We only believe what fits in with our worldview. And everything else we reject. When I first read that, it scared me. Because I could understand it enough to doubt my own views. Can I really be sure that what I understand about the Dhamma is true? Even about life, because it's so easy to make a mistake. When those hindrances, the defilements are there, they work unseen. Even before you hear something, it has been filtered. You simply just do not hear what's said if you don't think it's important or if you just don't want to hear it. You don't even see what is ugly or abhorrent to you. Just the, the eyes turn somewhere else before you even choose. That's why I remember sort of uh, a doctor telling me that the eyes don't just see, they look as well. And that's done almost, actually is, automatic. That you just look at something, it grabs your sight without you choosing to look this way or that way. And it looks away from things it dislikes. It looks towards what it wants to see. It shows you just how, you know, even the, the raw perceptions which come into our mind are selected, bent, filtered, so we only hear what we want to hear and feel what we want to feel. I was telling someone earlier, again, many of you know these old stories, but there's a few people here who don't. You know, there's uh, Haniyatis at the back there. I must confess to you, I wasn't always a very moral person. I had my first alcohol when I was 13 years of age, sneaking into a pub in Richmond, by the river, I still remember that, in the afternoon when hardly anyone was there, pretending you were 18, which was you know, pretty difficult for a 13-year-old, but I got away with it, <laughs> by half pint of beer. And I thought just, you know, when I, I got away with it and had it and sat down to drink it, I thought just how clever I was until I started drinking this stuff. Now, half a pint is a considerable amount of liquid. And the first sip, I wanted to spit it out and be sick. It tasted terrible, really bitter stuff. But I finished it. But I didn't buy another one. I was out. And I just could not believe just how disgusting English beer tasted. Because everybody else liked it. You guys must be crazy. But, of course, those who know, know the story, you know, it took me about six months, maybe a year, and then I started to like it. And the reason I liked it because I had to. The peer pressure to fit in with your friends was so strong that I had to change the reality of the situation, which was English beer tastes disgusting, to English beer tastes delicious. And I got a taste for it. And I remember that experience to show just how much of what I like and what I don't like are conditioned. It's not real. But nevertheless, I believe it, and that forms much of my worldview. So understand those whippalasas and how they work, how they pervert your view. It made me very scared, as it very well should do. Now, all the things which you understand all the things which you believe in, all the things which you trust, are they true or are they not? And as many of you know, even if you look in the suttas, I mean, that's the most reliable. But you can read the suttas and still get it wrong. Why? Because you just can't see it. Or you see it, but you can't feel it. You know, you, when you actually get the experience, and you know what the suttas are saying. In the same way you read a, a travelogue of Paris, and you know, your idea of what Paris is from the travelogue is very different, not actually reality. Well, I remember the first time I went to New Zealand and I saw these pictures of these mountains and these lakes and these beautiful forests. It looked like paradise. And that was my idea of New Zealand, you know, from the, the pictures. When I went there, I experienced the sand flies. They were everywhere, and you just couldn't stand still. You could not see the sand flies in the picture. <laughs> but they were there. So, you know, beautiful scenery. You like to stop, but if you stop, they just attack you.
And it was just, you know, hundreds of them, they really hurt. So because of that is another experience. You know, what you imagine to be beautiful is actually suffering. This is the perceptions. What you expect and the experience itself, when you actually get there, is not quite the same. Which is why even the descriptions, the travelogue of jhanas as you see in the suttas, the description of Nibbāna, the description of of um, the Dhamma, which you see in those suttas, it's very close. But the only way to really understand it is to get there, to go to New Zealand, and then you know what it's like, to go to jhanas, and then you can understand it. So that's why you have to have the experience. And the nice thing about things like jhanas and real insight, you all know that the only way you can experience those great states it's when the five hindrances have been overcome. When there is no desire, ill will, sloth or torpor, restlessness or doubt. Because it's those hindrances which are the benders of truth. They distort everything. Again, karma chanda. You see what you want to see. It was because of karma chanda, basically the beer tasted delicious. The truth was, it was disgusting. And then, why a part of ill will? It's because of ill will that somebody, I won't mention who, a monk uh, who's not here, said, oh, Ajahn Brahm, he doesn't teach wisdom. And that's incredible. What do you mean? Thousands of people listen to me. What are they listening to? It's not just the jokes. <laughs> if it was the jokes, they would go away a long time ago because they're bad ones. <laughs> No, it must be some wisdom somewhere. But why do they say that? And they believe that's because of your will. It bends your perceptions. Sloth and torpor, you don't see anything. Restlessness, you're not still enough to know what's going on. And doubt, you know, always wondering what's going on. So when those five hindrances are overcome, only then can you trust your view and understanding of things. Which is why in the last three months really emphasized Meditating. Not giving so many talks about, you know, what Nibbana is, you know, or what the nature of the five candors really are, or, you know, all these insight talks, you know, teaching you what you know what's the truth and what isn't the truth. The job of a teacher is not telling people what the truth is, but telling them how to find out for themselves. It's encouraging, teaching how to overcome those five hindrances, how to restrain them, suppress them, whatever it is, so that you can see <coughs> see the world without distorting it. That's why meditation is so important. I know many people keep asking, and they say they're pleading, please, Ajahn Brahm, say yes, say yes, please, only say yes once, just once, please. You know, do you really have to get jhanas to become enlightened? You have to. They get very disappointed. Oh, please, is there some other way? Jhanas are just too hard. I've been in this monastery for years and still haven't got jhanas. There must be another way. Please, 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 please. No. <laughs> you have to overcome those hindrances. And that's the only real way to do it. So that's why we keep emphasizing on this. Make peace, be kind, be gentle. That undermines those hindrances, undermines this controller. So that when those hindrances are gone, and you know what it feels like, at last you're free. At last you can just sit here still, and just enjoy this moment. And you know, that's what it feels like, freedom. That's this other word which I had a lot of fun with over the years, giving talks on what freedom is. People just think that going out there in the world, going where you want, doing what you want, that's called freedom. In a monastery, you can't eat in the afternoon. You just can't eat this and you can't eat that. You can't drink whiskey, you know, even though that somebody tried to offer us a bottle last week. You know, you can't have sex. You can't watch the TV. You can't. Oh, this place sucks. You know, just be free. But you all know that if you go out there into the world, you go out into a shopping center. I went to a shopping center on the other day. It was only a small one in Subiaco just to get some 
uh, earplugs for travel. And just going there, it's just such a nasty place to be in. Everything is just uh, trying to grab your attention. Buy me, look at me. And the smells, the, the uh, advertisements, the colors, it was just ugh, yucky. And as soon as you got out, now I'm free of that prison of craving and desire. And that's you know, understanding what real freedom is. Real freedom, you can understand it by how it feels. When you're free, you can be still. You don't have to do anything. What you're really free from is this terrible thing inside of you, always making you move. The restlessness, the craving, the wanting. And you know that you never felt so free as when you're in a monastery. Why? Because there's no way of getting things. No way that you can cultivate the wanting and craving. You know, you've, you've got the food laid on the table. If you don't like it, that's it. That's what you have to eat. You can't get any more. You can't go out, as I used to do when I used to have school dinners, have a look what was there, and if I didn't like it, I went, you know where I went, around the corner of the fish and chip shop. If I didn't like the, you know, I really hated this liver they used to give every now and again. It was disgusting. So when I saw that was on the menu, I just you know, left and got my own dinner. Home lunch. Don't have that choice over here. But you see, you feel so free when you don't have to do these things. You know, there are some people, you know, the, uh, you all know Rob, he has to watch Liverpool soccer every night, every morning. He just has to. He's not free. He just has to watch the movie. You have to watch the last episode of Harry Potter. You have to. Why? That's not freedom. You've been caught up. You're entrapped. But when you actually start to understand this, what real freedom is, real freedom is when you don't want anything. When wanting finishes, you're totally content, happy to be here. And hopefully that you've all experienced those wonderful moments in your life, hopefully here in meditation. You're sitting down and there's no other place you'd rather be than right here in this moment with whatever you're experiencing. So as you do that, even with a delightful breath, the breath is here, oh, this is good enough, I can stay here for hours. Jada Nimitz, yeah, you can come if you want, but this is good enough for me. So happy you don't want to be anywhere else in the whole world, content, at peace, still, that is freedom. And to get that insight, to know what freedom is, that's huge. That will stop a lot of the cravings and desires in the world. You go out there, those of you who are leaving, go out there and get a girlfriend, a boyfriend, go out there and just you know, work to get money to get things. And think, gee, what am I doing this for? It's just, there's no freedom there at all. It's just on the, on the wheel, like a little rat, always going round. That's the thing about the the wheel in the rat cage, in the mouse cage. They're always going upwards, but they never get to the top. Always, you know, it seems to be in your power just to run a bit faster and you get to the top. But as you go up, the wheel goes down. You're always running, 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 never getting anywhere until you die. But here in the monastery, you just stop all that running. You're still. And there you find the peace, the happiness, the fulfillment. Really what people want in life, what they're always aiming for, is enough so they can retire. Just enough comfort so you can be at peace. We do that early in a monastery. I have now got enough to retire. I did that 38 years ago. <laughs> I don't need anything more, so I don't have to work hard. Actually, I do work hard, but you make me. But you don't have to. You do that for others for fun. So this is how not to want. It gives you this marvelous sense of freedom. And even if you do have aches and pains, you're just happy to have these aches and pains. Even if you do have lots of things you're supposed to do tomorrow, that's tomorrow, not now. Therefore you can be free, just happy to be here with whatever you've got. That is called freedom.
And that's what it means by stopping those hindrances. You feel this incredible sense of freedom and peace and stillness. <coughs> Not only does it give you great insight, sometimes we think we're just going to abandon these hindrances so we can get right view. As if that somehow that once these hindrances are overcome, now we can see the Dhamma. But it's not. We experience the Dhamma. We experience this is real freedom. Why didn't I just realize this before? Sometimes, why don't I realize why people go off into monasteries and spend their whole life and dedicate their whole life just to being monks and nuns? And these aren't crazy people. Highly intelligent, smart people. Why do they do this? It's because they are smart. They know what real freedom is. They know what peace is. They've got insights. They've seen truth. The truth beyond the five hindrances. Also the simile of the Buddha, like a mountain. You have to climb to the top of the mountain to see what's on the other side. Otherwise, on this side of the mountain, all you know is this side. You know that mountain, the, the jhanas? Climb that mountain, free from the five hindrances, see what's on the other side. What's on the other side? Wow! Peace, freedom, stillness, joy, safety. On this side of the mountain, headaches, craving, old age, sickness and death, bodies, girlfriends, boyfriends, babies, grandchildren, money worries, too much money, husband worries, wife suffering, you name it, <laughs> it's on this side. On the other side, freedom. So just take one peek at that. I always say, if a person gets into jhanas, a real jhana, that will change changes their life. Get a few, and they just can't go back again. So they've seen something which is just too delightful. They've seen dhamma, at least a lot of it. That's why I always love quoting this: the experience of even first jhana. The Buddha called that sambodhi sukha. Sambodhi, as you all know, means enlightenment. He called it enlightenment happiness, just the experience of first jhana. reason is because it's that close. You get a taste of freedom. People always like talking about the taste of freedom, we muti rasa. Where freedom is another word for nibbana, I suppose. So this is the taste of freedom, jhanas. Experiencing these things. Wow. And if you can only follow the instructions, it works. But even though you know the instructions, you're not following them. Even though you're talking about making peace, being kind, being gentle, they're written on t-shirts, you, know, you, you teach them as well, still you don't do it. <laughs> That's really an amazing thing. You think you're doing it, but you ain't. If you were, you'd be in jhanas by now. The reason why aren't we doing it? The reason is because it's these damn hindrances. Now we think we're doing it, but the hindrances twist it all around, and actually we're not. We think we're making peace, but we're actually doing it. We're doing peace. We think we're being kind, but it's only kind to some things and not kind to others. We think we're being gentle, but with a bit of a, a bit of aggression in there as well. Come on, only a few days to go. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> but it's not doing the right thing. Which is why I started this talk. If you really are making peace, being kind, being gentle, if you really are doing that, your mindfulness will show you, will be very easy, very clearly giving you feedback. You are relaxing. You are getting calm. Things are slowing down. Your restlessness is vanishing. You're waking up. Desires and your will, they're not there. The mind is becoming still. Everything is becoming peaceful, beautiful, happy. Great, that is your sign that you're doing the right thing. It's working. So whatever that is, that's why I often say, don't just pay attention to the object of meditation. What's between? Well, what, what are you doing with this object of meditation? It's not whether you see the nimittas or not. How are you seeing the nimittas? What are you doing with this? Are you really making peace, being kind, being gentle? Or are you holding those nimittas? You know, even faking them. It's amazing what the mind can do with the Ripalazas. Ripalazas, you can create these false numitas. Now, I don't want to think that, oh, that means my numitor, which I've got so far, might be a fake one. No, yours are probably okay. 
because you're not control freaks. I just, I think I've beaten that out of you. I'm not quite beating it out of you, but brainwashed most of you out of that. But you can do that through force because you want them so much. These whippalasas can almost create the false ones. You see what you want to see. You create it, you fantasize it. And it's so real. It's not the real thing. It's not peaceful. It's tense, it's tight, powerful, but you can't go any further. You can't get the jhana, you can't really let go. The hindrances are still there. Control, you're afraid of it disappearing. It is still too much desire. You find that, yeah, sloth and torpor ago, restlessness is still there in the background, just holding. You haven't really let go. You haven't seen the Dhamma. But if you do let go, you go into those places. Wow. Now you understand what making peace, being kind, being gentle is. And you know why that's coming. There's nobody in here. That's why you can do this. Remember, this is actually for the novices and anagarikas. I was teaching the Yamaka Sutta yesterday. You know, there's no one owning these five candors. There's no one the same as these five candors. There's no one containing these candors. The containers don't contain you. Basically, all options and permutations and possibilities have been covered. There's no one there. Just understanding that means it's easy to let go. Letting go means it's easy to understand that. Making peace, being kind, being gentle, you've got no choice. So actually the path is the insight, is the wisdom, it's the Dhamma, is the stuff of stream winning, it's just the very path. How jhanas happen is because of non-self. They wouldn't be able to happen if there was a self there. How can a self let go of a self? How can control let go of controlling? The very fact that jhanas are possible should be pretty obvious to anyone with a logical mind that there is no self. If there was a self, it's disappeared. Where the hell has it gone? In the jhanas. There's no controlling left. There's this, you know, even the know is weird. It's not the usual one. It's not the person you usually expect to know. So because of all that, if there's a self there, jhanas would be impossible. Because jhanas are, it means there's nobody in here. It's very sort of one of the insights you get with lots of these experiences. So this is all part of samaditi, the right view. And so we sometimes talk right view, but mostly talk about meditation. If we talk about right view and the wisdom and the Dhamma, it's only just to assist in meditation. So you can eventually find out for yourself. And don't worry that if you haven't meditated much this rains retreat, it doesn't matter, you will. Sometimes my job is just to you know, encourage you, put in the seeds, as the seeds were put inside of me. It's nothing to do with you, so please, at the end of this range retreat, don't give yourselves marks out of ten how this range retreat has been done. Whether you've got an A, B, C, D, E, or what most people give themselves is an F. They do! It's crazy! Why is that? Because lack of self-esteem and all that stuff which has been brainwashed into us, you know, from school days. No, no, just, there's no E's, there's no F's, there's no D's, C's, B's and A's or whatever it is. So don't even give yourself a mark. As I was telling someone, just that wonderful simile of the Buddha, and it's one of his best, is the simile of the big water jar, taller than a person's height. And all you can see is water dripping into that jar. But you cannot see how much water is in the jar? Actually, you can't even see if it's got a hole in the bottom and it's all dripping out, but that's not part of the simile. <laughs> there is no hole in that jar. So you know that as long as another drop has gone into that jar, you're getting closer and closer and closer. It's only a matter of time until that jar becomes totally full and it starts to sort of uh, flow over the, the top that's the jhanas, that's the enlightenment, it's all happened. Whee. So your job is only to put more water in the jar, the Buddha's simile. In which means that just keep on making peace, being kind, being gentle. Don't worry about how 
full the jar is. Just make sure you're making it more full. Don't judge yourself. Just make sure that the unwholesome qualities are decreasing, the wholesome ones are increasing, that's all. And just be diligent in doing nothing. And that's totally different than being lazy. Being lazy, you realize the unwholesome qualities increase. The wholesome ones decrease. That's not what doing nothing is. Again, people get really confused when I keep saying this. Making peace, being kind, being gentle is doing nothing. Or rather nothing doing. Because that is what creates peace. When the chaitanya stops, there's nothing to move the mind. It becomes still all by itself. Ajahn Chah's you know, leaf in the wind simile. So this is why I say doing nothing. But a lot of times doing nothing, people say is doing whatever you want. That's not doing nothing. That creates unwholesome qualities, restlessness, you can't meditate, always sort of uh, sleeping, reading, doing this, doing that. That's not doing nothing. In the same way, you know what peace, making peace, being kind, being gentle is by its results. Things get calm and peaceful. The mindfulness gives you that feedback. You are going in the right direction. And if it really is doing nothing, the body becomes still, the mind becomes still, hindrances just vanish, no thoughts. My th thinking is doing something. And never have the idea that thoughts come into your mind by, your, by themselves. They do not. I saw that many years ago. I went out to pull them in. They will not come in without invitation. So, you pull them in. You've done something. Understand that and you understand what real doing nothing is, what letting go is. And why I teach like this. To try and restrain the chedana. Restrain everything. So there's nothing to cause movement. Look at the causes. Understand those causes. Once you understand the causes, you understand how to be peaceful. You don't aim for jhanas, you aim to put the causes into place. Making peace, being kind, being gentle, the proper one. And mindfulness giving the feedback. And that becomes your path. That becomes your insight too. That becomes your dhamma. And then when you experience these things and you go back to those suttas, when you've been to New Zealand, you understand just those photographs. You look very clearly, you can probably see a few spots in there. You understand just why the, the uh, cameraman had to have a very fast camera to take the shot and get out quick. So much insight comes when you understand from experience what's going on. So that's why it happens and that's how it works. So if you haven't become enlightened yet, doesn't matter, your jar is getting full. And the amazing thing is, you never know when it's going to overflow. It could be tonight. <laughs> Who knows? But make sure you're awake when it happens. <laughs> Don't worry about sleeping so much. Just notice your mind. Relax the body. Make peace, be kind, be gentle. And just see what happens. You know, there's a lot of times... In my life as a monk, I've been really exhausted. You know sort of how fast I go sometimes and how much stuff I get done. And sometimes, because I'm also rebellious, in the sense, you know, doing something which I'd never done before, that's one of the reasons why I'm going to Las Vegas, just because I haven't done that before, and it's interesting stuff to do. It's probably a waste of time, but who cares? I'm too late now. But, not to go to the casino, by the way, just to teach meditation outside. Got to say that because sometimes people get the wrong idea. Because of their whippalasas, because of ill will, I say that and they think that I'm going to casino. You see how the whippalasas work? They bend the truth just to, you know, just to fit their opinion of somebody. But anyway, uh, you never know what's going to happen. So a few times I've been really tired and just say, "What the hell? I'm going to meditate." And I'm really tired, really exhausted. I'm really sick. So what the hell? I'm going to try and meditate. Just going to sit here and see what happens. It's amazing how many times I've got the deepest of meditations when I've least expected them in the most unlikely of situations. 
And that has taught me something very, very uh, important. It doesn't matter if you're tired, if you're sick, at the end of the range retreat, you've got hay fever, you've got... You know, it's amazing to sometimes you sit here and be totally quiet and peaceful, just make peace, be kind, be gentle, and things which shouldn't disappear do disappear. And you're tired, but you make peace, be kind, be gentle, your just body gets energized. Sometimes even I can't figure out why that happens. It's totally unexpected, illogical. Why that should happen, I don't know. Maybe I've got a bit more idea these days. Just how powerful the mind is. It's more powerful than anything else. And you know how to use that power, make peace, be kind, be gentle. It's amazing what this mind can do on your body. You just sit here and even though you're exhausted, you haven't slept for a long time, and you're tired, you're sick, you just sit up here and wow, wham, bam, and all this incredible pity sukha just comes up. And you're off, you're away, having a great time. You come out afterwards, wow, how come that happened? Other times you've rested, had a good meal, feel good, you sit there and nothing happens. <laughs> I know that, so it happened so many times before. So sometimes, give it a try. Who knows? Don't always just think, well, it's too late, I shouldn't meditate now. Oh, it's too early, I can't get up now. Oh, I'm too sick. No, oh, it's the end of the retreat, it's not going to work. No, just live in the moment. Make peace, be kind, be gentle, see what happens. There is still time, yet. So that's the talk this evening. The last talk, which hopefully, putting a few threads together, sort of understanding the whole path, very simply, but actually very profoundly, the way I practice. And hopefully that will brainwash you enough for three or four weeks until I can get my next time to... Uh, uh, give you another dose of brainwashing. <laughs> okay, end of the talk. Very <laughs> good. <laughs>